Hello and welcome to NDIS Know How, a podcast series that asks how can parents get the very best NDIS plan and sufficient funding to support their kid. This podcast is written and made by me, Melanie Dimmitt, the author of Special, and powered by HireUp, a disability support platform connecting families like mine with top-notch support workers. In this episode, I'm chatting with Benison O'Reilly and Shauna Smith, co-authors of what's known as the Essential Guide for Parents of Children with Autism, about their new, fully updated edition of the Australian Autism Handbook. Benison and Shauna both have sons with autism, and our conversation covers some of what's changed in the years since they launched the first edition of the handbook back in 2008. The NDIS, of course, has majorly shaken up the disability space, and Benison and Shauna share their advice for autism families who are new to the scheme. First up, I ask the pair how they're feeling about relaunching the handbook, to which Shauna replies with her soothing Scottish accent. It's really exciting actually to have it out into the world and to sort of mark how things have changed for the better, you know, since our own um, sons were diagnosed when they were little. Mm. Yes, it has changed a lot. Um, you know, there was, and when our children were diagnosed, there was no money, you know, it was basically all self-funded um, or, or you relied on the public services, which were, you know, you know I think originally I was offered like a, a morning in a preschool for Sam, like a, as as there with the Autism Association, it's my initial you know, and so it was like that was the sort of thing we were looking at. Otherwise, so it had to be self-funded. It wasn't when the book came out that edition. I think the helping children with autism um, package had just come in, and that was some money. So that made a big difference to some families. But compared to the NDIS, uh, where depending on your child's needs, they can really fund a really good, you know, really good support package. Um, it's completely different. So yeah, so it's it's nice to have that taken away from families that terrible anxiety. I mean, we knew people that cash in with superannuation and lots of stuff and, you know, for go, having a house and lots of stuff so they could provide therapy for their children. So it's good that that's made it much more equitable. Yeah, so things have definitely changed for the better. Mm. And I think the book has a sort of really reflects so many of those things. We've got, um, you know, that most importantly, the voices of people with autism, young people with autism and adults with autism, which we didn't have in the first edition of the book. There's a chapter where you've had um, adults with autism give advice to parents of children with autism. I think you said in another interview, it was probably the most valuable section in the book. Can you share with me some of the advice that was passed on from these adults with autism? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly. I think I think some of the things that affected me most um, were um, people talking about what worked when they were kids. You know, so um, somebody whose family was just very organised and very disciplined and everything happened at the same time. And of course, she then realised as an adult that that was exactly what she needed. You know, and if she'd been brought up in a more chaotic household, things could have been very different for her. So that was really important, I think. And also um, not having great expectations, being allowed to be who they were, I think was really important too. Also, I think I I don't have sensory sensitivities, you know, and um, my son was undersensitive. So he was a hyperactive child that liked to run into things. So I think if if you're an 
a typical adult who doesn't have sensory sensitivities, you need to hear it from somebody else who can articulate it. So why, I mean, I do understand this through another child of mine, but that the light really does hurt the eyes, that your brain shuts down when there's noise. Actually, everybody can relate to that in the extreme. But I think um, knowing that hearing from the horse's mouth, as it were, um, why somebody does something and understanding that it's a very uh, sensible way to behave. You know, if something's mm. causing you pain, you're going to try and get away from it. If something's overwhelming, you want to get away from it. So that idea that all behavior is um, communication is really important. And I think that helps because when, you know, running up to a diagnosis, I don't know if this was your experience at all, but you just think that there's something wrong with you as a parent. And that's why your child is not interacting with you, not playing with toys, running away, all, all this sort of thing. So I know by the time my son was diagnosed, I was a very demoralized parent that thought I was doing it all wrong, which I was for that child. But when I had a typically developing child, I realized that, you you know, they kind of bring themselves up, don't they, a typically developing child, whereas you really need to understand a child who's got um, developmental differences. Um you're, we're, we're not like it's very challenging and I think that parents deserve a lot of empathy and encouragement and love and care um, because things that should be coming easily are definitely not um, and, and you almost need to wind back all the things you thought you should be doing and change them which is yeah difficult. Yeah, start with a totally different script or just with a blank page even and see, let your child sort of take the lead. Venison, were there any pieces of advice from that section that really stuck with you or that you wish that you'd known at the start of your journey? The, the, the Why I stim, I think, is a really important um, mm-hmm. fact because it's, um, you know, that was even, I think even when um, Sam was young and started ABA and it was sort of something that, in therapies tried to stamp out not so much Sam's program because I was uncomfortable with it but but um yeah there was and now we see you know these very articulate adults explaining that you know it's a it's a regulating thing it manages their anxiety and you know sort of stuff and it's also pleasurable as well so even though um it can look off-putting to the outsider there is there's a function behind behind that and I think that will be very helpful for parents who have got young children to see uh, to have these people explaining this to them and seeing that these people are doing very well in their adult lives but still it's like stim as well so it's a yeah i think that'll be really helpful for them i want to chat about the ndis you've touched on the difference that it's made financially for families you know any families in the disability space like you say we wouldn't we wouldn't have a house. Our parents probably wouldn't own their houses. We would have thrown all our money into this. So we're incredibly lucky to have it. But I know like with Arlo, with severe CP, we haven't struggled much. It was clear cut. You've got a severe disability diagnosis. We, you know, it wasn't tricky to show what his needs are. This isn't always the case for autism Mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have for parents of kids with autism who are new to the scheme and trying to be good advocates for their child to get the supports they need. What advice do you have for those parents? I think the main thing is to get started and to start off with a one year plan so that you can just have a try. And 
it will depend as well if you already know the treatments or therapies that you want to do and you've got the people lined up to do them then you can go for it but if you're really not sure whether what you need and when you need it then I would just don't panic remember you're going to be your child's going to be developing and you're going to be developing for years and just get started with something and I would also say it's not just all focusing on therapies either you want to focus on having fun as a family which the NDIS might help you with some extent but it's just working out what works in your family what doesn't work in your family when you need some help when you don't need some help and and I really think it's important to go easy on yourself and easy on your child and not race around to a million things which I did far too much um so I think that looking at, at, at the family as a whole and what is already working well in your family, what do you love doing as a family? Don't stop it to do speech therapy, you know, keep <laughs> doing what you love. Um, I think that some of the most valuable things we ever did was run around at the beach, you know, and, and, and encourage a love of the outdoors and um, encourage physical movement as well is really important. Um, because you've got years and years and years and years and years to um, work on your child's development. There's no such thing as a normal child, you know, you. so there's not sort of some magical normal development that you're going for. Everybody's different. And, and I have to say in my own experience with my children, I've got children who've got good IQs and normal speech development. And sometimes their life is harder in some respects, you know, so that aiming towards that or thinking that that's what is good or easier or whatever is not correct. Um, I think that finding what makes your family function well, what makes you all happy is really important. Within that, therapies like speech therapy, OT, whatever your child needs, therapy for yourself as well is what's going to be something that helps you move forward and maybe do more in, in future years. But I would say don't kill yourself at the beginning because you need to just take some breaths. That is such good advice for parents at the start who spend their whole lives in therapy centres. And it's hard because you feel like you've only got a certain amount of time to make change, but you're so right. And you don't want their whole childhood to be spent in therapy centres as well and their siblings' childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, Benison, what advice do you have? Well, it's interesting you said um, the early intervention chapter in the book um is the longest chapter by far. Um, it is a big revision of previous uh, uh, versions, but it's interesting because I, I, I'm a medical writer, so I can I can read scientific uh, publications and and then write them in an accessible way. But I'm also very cognizant of uh, clinicians, hands-on clinicians. So I actually sent that chapter. That chapter was reviewed by two of the authors of the early intervention. Australian guidelines. So, and they, um, David Trimbath and Andrew Whitehouse, and they came back with such excellent advice. But I think it was particularly, you know, David was sort of saying, you know, um, you know, we don't know what the right amount of um, intervention or uh, sort of prescribed therapy, I don't know, let's not think of that, rather than just having fun, as Shauna said, is for each child, it's going to be variable. They used to say you have to do a certain amount of hours. Now they're saying no. You, t- you start with what you think is manageable 
for your family circumstances, which could be completely different from one family to the next. And then find what works and you might find that you can do, your child can do more and thrives with more and might need less. Or, and you, so you find the thing that works for your family. If you find something that works for your family, that is going to be the most successful model. So um, I thought that was great advice. A huge thanks to Benison and Shauna for this chat. The new edition of the Australian Autism Handbook is published by Ventura Press and available to buy through all good booksellers. Big thanks also to Hira for supporting me in making this podcast. And I'll catch you again soon on NDIS Know How.